from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, I talk to Says You panelist Tony Khan. We talk about his experience as a young child while his father, Gordon Khan, was being blacklisted in Hollywood. Gordon was accused of being a communist. I talked to Tony Khan about that and more. Also, Trump was acquitted in the Senate for a second time, but this time with six more Republicans joining the Democrats than last time. We'll have a special report there. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and you are listening to News Nerds, the news podcast. Former President Donald Trump has been acquitted in the United States Senate for the second time. The historic Senate impeachment trial became the most bipartisan Senate trial with seven Republicans, joining all of the Senate Democrats and two independent independent senators. When the Senate reconvened last Saturday, the trials began unusually. House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin of Maryland asked the Senate to subpoena House Representative Jamie Herrera-Butler. The Democratic impeachment managers decided to do this after Herrera-Butler recalled a phone conversation she overheard where House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pleaded with the former president to stop his supporters from breaking into the Capitol. Trump told McCarthy that Antifa and not his supporters were breaching the Capitol. After McCarthy corrected the president, Trump said, quote, Well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are, unquote. The Senate went into an abrupt re- one-hour recess after the request, and when they came back to the floor, Herrera Butler's tweet claiming that this was the case was admitted as evidence instead of them calling Herrera Butler to the Senate floor. Then, as planned, the closing arguments from both sides were presented. Democrats made the case that Trump had incited this kind of violence for months. They said that a president should not deny the results of an election that he or she justly lost. My dear colleagues, is there any political leader in this room who believes that if he is ever allowed by the Senate to get back into the Oval Office, Donald Trump would stop inciting violence to get his way? Said lead House impeachment manager Jamie Raskin in his closing arguments. Would you bet the lives of more police officers on that? Would you... Bet the safety of your family on that? Would you bet the future future of your democracy on that? On the other side of the political spectrum, Trump's lawyers argued that Trump used peaceful language in his Save America speech. They said that he specifically asked for peaceful protesting in a part of his speech. They further stated that every political leader uses inflammatory language, sometimes and they cited specific examples from Democratic politicians, like Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. After the closing arguments from both sides finished, a vote was held, and as expected, Trump was acquitted. The seven Republicans that voted to convict were Susan Collins of Maine, Ben Sass of Nebraska, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah. Ten more Republicans would have been needed to convict the former president.
Tony Khan is a panelist on NPR's Says You occasionally, and he has produced many uh, podcasts and radio shows, including Blacklisted, which talks about his father, Gordon Khan's experience as being a blacklisted figure in Hollywood. He joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Ezra. Very nice to meet you. So your father, Gordon Kahn, how did he find his way into Hollywood and how did he start acting? Well, he wasn't an actor. He was a screenwriter and uh, he, he loved the English language. He wasn't born in America, but he came to the U.S. when he was six years old from Hungary. And he just immediately took to English. And as he was growing up in New York, he came from a poor family. The smartest thing for him to do with his love of English was to become a newspaper reporter. So he became uh, a very well-known newspaper man in New York City. And then in about 1930, the movie business started to put sound on its films. Prior to that, it had been nothing but silent films, as you probably know, guys like Charlie Chaplin and whatnot. But now that uh, the movies could carry sound and dialogue, People in Hollywood needed people who knew how to write dialogue. And so the first thing they did was they went to people in the newspaper business in New York and said, hey, listen, how would you like a job writing movies and writing words for actors to speak here in Hollywood? We guarantee we'll pay you a lot more than they're paying you in New York City to be a newspaper man. So in 1930, which is far, far, far too many years ago, <laughs> but they did have airplanes back then and they had trains. Uh, he went out to Hollywood uh, and started to be a screenwriter. And he stayed in, in Hollywood for about 20 years after that, writing many, 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 many movies, uh, some really good, some not so good. But as a podcaster, you probably know you have to generate material all the time. And sometimes you do your best and sometimes you don't have time. Anyway, he wrote 30 movies, uh, cowboy movies, mysteries, uh, love and romance uh, movies, war movies. And uh, I think he sort of enjoyed it, but basically it wasn't deep inside the kind of writing he wanted to do, but it was a nice way to make a living until all of a sudden it didn't become such a nice way to make a living for him. And that's part of what Blacklisted talks about. It tells the story of what happened to him after he became well-known in Hollywood as a screenwriter. Yeah, so you published an audio drama on NPR in, the, in 1997 uh, called Blacklisted, and that explores um, uh, how your father was blacklisted. So uh, why was your father blacklisted by Hollywood? Well, this was a time where there was a lot of fear in the country. People in the US were afraid we were gonna to go to war with Russia and China. Right after World War II, it looked like there was gonna be a World War III. And World War III was gonna be with atomic weapons. So people were afraid this is a disaster. And a lot of politicians saw that fear as a real opportunity to get some power. They said, well, we'll tell you who you should be afraid of and you let us go and track them down and trust us. Not unlike what tends to happen in politics today. You look for an enemy and you say, 
all your problems and all your fears come from these weird outsiders. Now, what made father a, my father a weird outsider was that he was very left-wing in his politics, and the government was very right-wing. He was probably a member of the Communist Party, which back then was a, getting to be a very dirty word, even though it was a legal party. But it would be, it would be worse than being called the Proud Boy, let's say. Although you're in Missoula, so I don't know how people feel about the Proud Boys in Missoula. But it was, it was considered to be a, uh, um, the sign that you were actually on the side of the Russians and the Chinese and not the Americans. So if somebody said, hey, you're a communist, people didn't ask for proof that that meant you were a bad guy or that you wanted to overthrow the government. That was enough. You suddenly became marked as a communist. Nobody would want to come near you. People would be afraid of being seen with you for fear that other people might then say, well, you're with the communists. You must be a communist too. You know how people in school will sort of shy away from somebody who's not popular sometimes. And that was on a much bigger scale what was happening then. So the government decided they wanted to call about 18 communists in Hollywood who were well known in the movie business and get them to admit they were communists. And then to prove that they were communists and they were sorry to be communists, to name the names of everybody else they knew who was a communist. So in order to prove that you were patriotic, you had to denounce somebody else and say they're not patriotic. This is a very strange thing that happens, but it does happen in times of fear. So all of a sudden, these 19 people and the, the, the press covered this whole story. So everybody in the country was reading about this because it was Hollywood. I mean, if this were happening in a small farming community, it would never have attracted the kind of attention that it did. But it was Hollywood. And all of a sudden, these, these men couldn't get a job anymore. Not because they weren't good writers and not because they weren't patriotic. Many of them were, but because they'd been called a communist. And at that point, some of them were being sent to jail. And you know why they were being sent to jail? Because they told Congress, you have no right to ask what my political opinions are, and you have no right to judge me by my thoughts. Well, that didn't go over too well with Congress. So they said, you're in contempt of Congress. Go to jail for a year. Ten of, ten of them were sent to jail for a year. My father knew he was going to be the next one they went after. So rather than go to prison, not be able to do anything to support his family, and I was five years old at the time, and I had an older brother who was eight, he fled to Mexico, not too far to Mexico from Hollywood, where we were living at the time. He just got in his car and drove away and we joined him soon after, and, and I spent the next five years of my life uh, in Mexico, growing up in Mexico, worrying all the time that the FBI might at any point try to get the government of Mexico to throw my father back to the United States. So it was a very tricky and, and scary time for everybody, not only for the people who thought communists were enemies, but for the people who were called communists who suddenly lost everything. 
their, their jobs, their standing in the community, their income, in some cases, their lives. Some of them committed suicide. Some families broke up under the pressure and the strain. It was a very bad time in, in the country's history. And my father happened to be caught up in the, in the middle of it. So you said that you that your father was probably a communist. Do you ever did you ever uh, find out if he was mo uh, definitely in the Communist Party? No, I never did. Uh, when I was growing up, <clears throat> probably when I was around your age, as a matter of fact, and I knew a little bit about what he had gone through and and the price that he had paid for being left wing. I said, well were you a member of the Communist Party or not? Because you wouldn't tell anybody when they, when they went after you in Hollywood. He said, who wants to know? <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to know. He said, what difference would it make to you? And I said, well, it wouldn't. I know who you are. He said, well, that's my point exactly. That to be labeled as something is like having somebody suddenly put a big handle on you. And then people can just throw you and push you around with that handle and forget completely that at the end of that handle is a human being who may be very much like you. So he never told me, but here's what I think, okay? I think he was, and I think that he joined the party in the late 1930s, not the, not the late 40s when this whole trouble started, but when, when being a member of the Communist Party meant that you were left-wing, you believed in uh, civil rights. You believed in, in equal pay for men and women. Uh, and you believed that uh, Russia was not an enemy, but had been an ally, and that we should try to make peace with Russia rather than war with Russia. Uh, so I think he was a Communist Party member. I don't know if he stayed a Communist Party member, but it wasn't what his life was all about. So did your father know any of the other people, the other 18 people that were uh, accused of being communists? They were colleagues of his. They, they had, uh, some of them had even worked on movies together, screenwriters. A few of them were directors, and one of them was a producer. And they, they were very friendly with each other, uh, some more than others. You know, they're called the Hollywood Ten by historians, if you go and you study this. But that's another term that makes you think, well, they're called the Hollywood 10. They must have done everything exactly like robots. They believed the same thing. They, they were 10, 10 individuals. Some of them were close friends. Some of them were less close. So um, he did know them all, though. And when they were called before Congress in the Capitol building, which we've seen a lot of recently, um, they, uh, they were all called together. So they were a kind of uh, group. It, when you see pictures of them from those times, you'll often see them lined up standing on the steps of Congress or standing in front of the people who supported them. So. So when you were five and your family had to move to Mexico, that must have been uh, pretty confusing and maybe terrifying. How did you, um, how did you take that all in as a five-year-old? Let, let me ask you a question, if I may, that may help explain this. You're, you're uh, 11, is that right? Yeah, 11. Do your parents know how much you 
want to take care of them even while they're taking care of you? Do they know that you may sometimes worry about them as right. people, people you love? Well, I think kids all over the world do the same thing. And you start being aware of, of your wanting to be of help to your, to your family from a very early age, even before 11. So at five years old, I didn't know what the politics were that were going on, but I knew that my family and my mother and my father were in trouble, uh, that they were worried, that they were nervous, that they sometimes were concerned if somebody came knocking at the door because it might be an FBI agent. Now, nobody told me that they were FBI agents and nobody told me about the left wing in politics and the right wing. I, I wouldn't have been able to understand that. But I sensed that something was wrong. And I, I worried a good deal. And when my father fled uh, to Mexico, it was nine months before I saw him again. And during those nine months, nobody, none of the grown-ups in my family talked about him because they were afraid. They didn't want to tell me they were afraid, but they were afraid that that I might know something about where he was and and accidentally give that away to the FBI, that it wasn't safe. And they also didn't want me to worry. But what I ended up thinking, because nobody was talking about him, and I remembered him and, and wondered where he was going, I started to think, maybe he's dead and nobody wants to tell me. So I would walk around without telling my parents that, and they'd walk around without telling me what was really going on. And, Everybody was trying to do their best to take care of everybody else. Uh, that's one of the wonderful things about family, uh, but sometimes it can backfire. So anyway, I, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, our neighbors, though, called us names. I have an older brother, as I may have mentioned, three years older, and they would call us communists. We had a next door neighbor, a kid named Tommy, who was a little bit older than my brother, and he would, he would try to get into fights with us. And he would threaten me and say, when you're asleep at night, I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you because you're a dirty communist. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't know what a communist was. Although I did ask my brother, can you teach me how to spell it? Because I figured if somebody called me a communist, at least I could say, well, I know how to spell it to you. you know? <laughs> That's, that's how kids fight for what they believe in. Right. <laughs> so your father was being watched uh, by the FBI um, and he was writing under another name. Um, he was writing books, I believe. He, the, that name was Hugh Foster. So was that yes. writing able to support your family while staying anonymous? Um, no, it really wasn't. It, it wasn't. Uh, he worked constantly, and it was very important for him to, 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 to keep writing, even if he couldn't sell anything under his own name, because they would say, well, that's the blacklist of Gordon Kahn, so don't, don't do his program or don't do his television script. But he, he did end up writing a couple of TV shows under this name, Hugh G. Foster, and he worked very hard with his agent to keep it a secret so nobody would know who, who Hugh G. Foster was. 
Um, he wrote magazine articles. As I said, he loved English. He loved turning a phrase. He loved working really hard for two weeks to write something that might be only three pages long, but it would be wonderful and funny and magnificent. So he would do that and then he'd sell it to a magazine, but I don't think he ever made more than maybe $3,000 in an entire year uh, from his work and he worked very hard. So my mother, uh, who had been a high school English teacher, went back to work. We were at that point living back in the States in New Hampshire and uh, she kind of supported us. At first though, when she applied for a job as a teacher in New Hampshire, guess what happened? They said, aren't, aren't you the wife of Gordon Kahn? Well, we can't hire you. So she, in a, in a sense, at the beginning of her working life, once again, got blacklisted for the same ridiculous reason that people were afraid of doing anything that might look unpatriotic. Right. And how did the uh, people in Mexico uh, react to your dad? Um, I don't know how the adults react. He had many friends, um, a lot of people who were professionals. Um, he also loved people who were not professional. And Mexico at that point was a very poor country, didn't have a middle class at all. It had a few very wealthy people and then just a huge population of people who were just getting by. But he would make friends with them. He, he taught himself Spanish. Um, and uh, along with them, of course, he had some American friends who had also fled to Mexico or were living in Mexico because uh, for political reasons. So uh, he loved the Mexicans. He loved Mexico. He loved the country. He loved the climate that we were living in. Didn't care that much for bullfighting, but he, uh, he loved the music. And uh, he was delighted that my brother and I sort of became Mexicans. You know, when you're that young, you learn a second language very quickly. So six months after we got to Mexico, my brother Jim and I were speaking Spanish and having Mexican friends. And, and uh, he got a lot of pleasure out of that. The, the one thing though, oh, and I should say this, that was great about Mexico. Mexico back then, this would have been about 1950 to 1955 or 56, said that it would allow political refugees to live safely in Mexico. If you were running from trouble at home and you had to immigrate to Mexico for political reasons, they would welcome you. And the only thing they would say is, don't be involved in political activities while you're here. But we understand your need for refuge. Everybody deserves that, so we'll give it to you. So that was another reason why he was very happy uh, with uh, the Mexicans and the Mexican government. But we're still outsiders. So, and you know how kids can be as opposed to grown-ups when it comes to not hiding their feelings about, you know, about you. So I got called a whole new set of dirty names by Mexican kids. In the US, American kids would call me a communist. And in Mexico, they would call me not a communist, but a gringo. And gringo is, was their term back then for well, it was a real put down term for people from the United States. So I couldn't escape that, that fear of being an outsider. 
but I loved Mexico. I, I loved so much about that country. It really became part of my, mi alma, my soul, definitely. Uh, and now we're going to transition to other topics, but if you want, you can go to Tony Khan's website, TonyKhan.org, and listen to Blacklisted, which originally aired in the 90s. So Tony also uh, is a panelist on Says You. So how did you end up being a panelist on Says You? Um, I'm still trying to figure that out, as a matter of fact. <laughs> No, there's a, there's a real answer to that. Uh, I worked uh, in Boston for most of my career in public broadcasting for television and radio. And uh, there was a wonderful community of people who were producing great shows all the time out of Boston, not, not New York or LA, but uh, Boston was a great home for a lot of local production and public broadcasting. And so I got, I, I knew many people in the business and we would hang out together. And one of them was Richard Schur, who was the host and the originator of the program. And he, he like a lot of uh, people in the media business was doing all kinds of shows all the time. But there was one in particular that he wanted to do because he thought of it himself and he, he thought it would be a great idea. And that was, uh, says you, he, he wanted a quiz show where he could ask his friends, people that he knew in Boston and had spent lovely evenings with uh, joking or making each other laugh or, or whatever it was we did when we were on our spare time. And he thought, I, I'll bring you guys in and I'll build a quiz show around your interactions with each other. And we'll kind of make it look like it's a competition. There'll be two sides and there'll be scorers and the whole idea will seem to be who won more points than the other to be that week's winner. But that was, that was just a magic trick. What, what he really wanted to do is to provide some framework where we could continue to chat with each other and make jokes and try to crack each other up. So he said, would you like to be on this? And I said, well, sure. Sounds like fun. I had, I had worked on at that point, maybe 40 different, television programs in one way or other, writing them or producing segments or, or appearing on air. And I said, oh, well, this is one more show. Let's give it a shot. And I like Richard. I like the people who are going to be uh, with me on it. And uh, um, we did a pilot. And you know about pilots, right? You know, you, you uh, you do one version of the show, and if your bosses approve of it and are willing to put up the money, then you can do a series. So we did a pilot, and the pilot was fantastic fun. We all just loved it. We took to it like fish to water. And of all of the shows that I've ever worked on in my career, uh, and maybe as many as 30 different pilots, this was the one pilot that didn't have to figure out what it was doing. It, took the right shape from the very beginning. It didn't have to kind of squeeze its way into the proper shape and form and make mistakes and then rethink the whole idea, which is what happens a lot to pilots. So Richard, Richard had a, a vision of some kind, uh, or if not a vision, since it was for radio, he had the hearing equivalent of the vision of what it should sound like. And, uh, and he was right. He got exactly what he wanted to do. And it, that became the longest running 
quiz show uh, in the history of public broadcasting. Right. Um, so then in 2004, you started to, you started uh, podcasting and then you became um, one of the first people to podcast. This, uh, and why did you uh, try that medium when it had not really taken off yet? Like right now, there's so many podcasts and so many different podcasters. But in 2004, I can only imagine that there w wouldn't be as many podcasts out there. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, here I am, uh, one of the fathers of podcasting back in 2004. And what are you? You're one of the great, great grandchildren of podcasting. And yet, they're both called podcasts, but I think they're really pretty different. A lot changed in the history of podcasting. What got me interested was that I'm kind of a, do you know the term gearhead? You ever heard of a gearhead? Gearhead is somebody who just, even though he may not look the type, he loves technology. Uh, I always wanted to be behind the television set with the, with the tubes, you know, trying to figure out how things work. So um, while I was uh, in 2004, I was hosting a regular traditional international news program called The World, which was coming out of uh, Boston. And I heard that there was this development somewhere that involved basically two guys. Uh, one was in California, one was... I don't know where, maybe in New York, they, they cooked up this idea that would let people make their own radio shows and broadcast them without having to go over the air. And they thought that would be neat, not only because anybody could listen to it around the world, but anybody could listen to it whenever they wanted to. So you didn't have to be sitting there in front of your radio tuning the dial and hoping that you, you weren't late because you'd only have one chance to hear it. So there was a, it was an interesting idea. And I was also doing, besides the world, I was doing a show, a short show, that was the people telling stories. Just average everyday people, people I'd never met before, who would come into the studio and they'd talk with me for about an hour and a half. And I'd put together what they said and make a story out of it. Morning um, stories. Morning stories, it was called. So I went to one of these guys uh, who were one of the originators of podcasting. And this was maybe a week after the term podcasting had been invented. And there were like maybe 10 podcasts in the entire world at that point. And I said to them, I'm, I'm doing this show, uh, it's a broadcast, but do you think it would work as a podcast? And they said, why not? Give it a try. Just tell somebody at your television station that you need and then he gave me this technical term, an RSS feed. It's a simple thing. You don't have to worry about it. If you don't know what it is, maybe the engineer will know. And then you can have a podcast. So I, I went back to, you know, the, the station I was working at. And I said, can you get me an, an RSS feed? They said, sure. And there it was. All of a sudden, um, Morning Stories became a podcast. One of the first 10 podcasts that were uh, around. And um, because we were so early to the game or to the party, when iTunes came along and uh, set up its podcast segment, its podcast section, it recommended us as an editor's choice. Uh, they didn't have to look far to find us. But next thing we knew, we were getting 300,000 downloads a week 
from all over the world. It was so exciting. And what was really exciting about it was it, that we were doing, we were able to do something different from what you could do with a radio show. We wanted our show, since it was about people telling stories, to be a way that people could get to meet people through stories. So we would find that our listeners were sharing the podcast with other people, family and friends. And then we started getting email. And then I'd start calling back the people who had emailed us and uh, interview them on the air and get their stories. And it began to grow and grow into a kind of collaboration between me and my assistant who were producing it and all these people around the world who loved to hear personal stories and wanted to tell their own. And half of our audience was coming from China. And the reason the Chinese were tuning into the podcast was they wanted to know more about what life was like in the West where we lived. And they were also learning English as a second language. And they thought, boy, it'd be a lot easier to learn English listening to a really interesting story rather than having to study it from a, from a grammar book. So it was always a surprise. Whatever was happening next seemed to be just the right kind of thing. You know what I can compare it to, uh, Ezra? You know how when you're playing a game, uh, let's say a pickup baseball game or something, and you're having a great time, and then uh, you may maybe even making rules for how to play it because you don't have a full team, right? Then along come another six or seven people who are interested and they want to play the game. So the, you immediately get an idea of how to do that. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go home and think about it and write a proposal or anything. You just say, well, we'll, we'll add an extra base or, or we'll, you know, we'll split the teams up this way. Well, that's kind of the way developing our podcast was. We, would, we were all at play trying to do this wonderful thing of getting to hear people's stories and the world would throw us or our listener would throw us another bright idea at some point to be just the right thing to make it work even better so we could reach even more people. Uh, and that's what podcasting for me was. Now, of course, it's much more like a radio show again, right? Um, you, you probably don't include your audience that much. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, and I, I know that people who listen to radio tend, even though they may write an email, tend not to think that anybody's ever going to write them back. You know, that, that there isn't going to be uh, a partnership going on. But that was, that was a, 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 an aspect of podcasting that we ran into at the beginning that was just very exciting. Right. Um, so back then, um, and how did you get an audience for a podcast? And did do you have any tips for a current day podcast like News Nerds? I, I wish I did, Ezra. I, I am so much a part of the early, early history of podcasting, like I'm a dinosaur, uh, you know? So anything I might suggest, like use your claws or make a big noise or, <coughs> you know, uh, attack a brontosaurus, it's not gonna make any sense nowadays. It's a very different kind of game. And I know very little about how you have to go about getting known, but I'll tell you one thing, Ezra, for what it's worth, this is my prediction, you're gonna be very successful at this. Because you bring a kind of enthusiasm to it and you're very confident 
about what the technology can do for you. Seems to me anyway, unless I've gotten you completely wrong, I don't think so. Um, and I think you'll probably end up not only having a popular podcast, but maybe even playing with the shape and the form of what a podcast is and how it develops. I mean, the, the pandemic has already had, we were talking a little bit about this before, right? The, the pandemic is beginning to have a huge influence on the way in which people are going to entertain each other, inform each other, connect with each other. And you could be part of that. I expect you will be. Unless you become a lawyer or a doctor or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony Khan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, Ezra, it's a pleasure. Let's go now to By the Numbers. We check into the COVID-19 dashboard by the Center for System Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Let's start this week with the global deaths because of COVID-19, the death toll, currently stands at about 2,400,000 uh, confirmed deaths, and that that's a little bit under what Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins is reporting now. The U.S. leads the world in the amount of deaths with now 490,000 deaths. Uh, Brazil has 242,000 deaths, and Mexico has 175,000 deaths. And now let's go to global cases. The world now has uh, a little bit over 109 million confirmed cases. Uh, the U.S. leads the world in this uh, topic too, with 27 800,000 confirmed cases. India is uh, the second most confirmed cases with 10,900,000, and Brazil has the third most confirmed cases with 9,900,000. And that's it for By the Numbers. It's time for the news and geographical location challenge. Let's start internationally. With first place, we have the United States with 96% of News Nerds listeners. Norway takes second with 2% of News Nerds listeners. And third place, we have uh, many runners-up. Um, we actually have eight runners-up this week. Um, they're not new to the club, but I'll name them anyway. With eight, with less than 1% is Australia, uh, and then there's seven other runners-up, Canada, the United Kingdom, Bosnia and Herzegovina, France, the Philippines, Switzerland, and Germany. And now let's go to our United States competition. Looks like things are staying the same here. Virginia is, has first place with 16% of all news nerds listeners in the United States. Ohio has second place with 9%. Washington has third place with 7%. And uh, the fourth place runners-up are Connecticut and California. They are two states that have been on the, that were on the leaderboards for a long time in the beginning of news nerds, but now Washington and Virginia are taking over their spots. It looks like. Well, that's it for this geographical location challenge. <laughs> Thank you.
that's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host, News Nerds on the web at newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also subscribe to our mailing list there and contact us. You can listen to News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On those suppliers, please leave us a review and subscribe for this episode of News Nerds. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>